Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, well, let's go to Jonah chapter 4 this morning. And I want us, as we conclude our series in Jonah, to look today at Jonah's anger, God's relentless grace. Jonah's anger, God's relentless grace. And let me ask, let me begin by asking a question, a question I think many of us want to know the answer to, but it's one of those kinds of questions that not many of us want to ask. Can a person live with tension? with God. Can a person live with tension with God? Even more so, can a Christian live with tension with God? Maybe you ask it this way and you wonder, does God still love us when we have tension with him? I want us to consider this this morning because Well, the book of Jonah is putting this front and center before us, right in front of our face to look at. Let me read chapter four, and then we'll come back and continue with the message. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade. Till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and yea, even the obeying of his word today. Chapter four of Jonah clarifies his tension with God and it's a tension that has run throughout the whole of the book. When we see this tension for us, it is both shocking yet eerily familiar. 
that, that Jonah would dare say some of the things that he says to God and claim some of the things he claims of himself. God saving Nineveh was more than Jonah wanted. Though he knew God would do it and that's what he tells God. And Jonah says this, that Nineveh's revival in chapter three, that God's saving all the people in, in Nineveh, it didn't just make him angry, it made him exceedingly angry. He was double angry, two portions at least, if you will. He was burning with anger and his anger was towards God because he would not judge nor destroy Nineveh. Jonah's anger was so great that he asked God to kill him. But his reasoning, so absurd, it's difficult to understand. He begins by telling God, I knew you would do this. I tried to warn you about yourself. He admits that what he knew to be true of God and what God would do in Nineveh was the very reason he ran from God to begin with. Jonah knew that God was gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he knew that he would relent from disaster when the Ninevites believed. Who could possibly like someone distinguished by these kind of deplorable characteristics? I thought that was better than that. You see some of the irony in this though, right? So Jonah begs God to take his life because it says, he says, it would be better for me to die than to have to experience the travesty of your unrelenting love. It would be better for me not to exist than to have to put up with your grace that knows no end. How often does this very knowledge of God cause us problems with God? Doesn't it seem ironic that the easy answer to that question ought to be, well, why would these qualities of God create a problem for us? And yet they're creating a problem for Jonah. The Lord responds to Jonah in verse five with a very, excuse me, verse four, with a very probing question. Do you do well? to be angry. Do you do well to be angry? God makes a big statement when he asks the question. He basically says, how's that anger working for you, Jonah? Is it helping? You feel good about it? The question literally asks this though, and this is where we get to the heart of the whole message of Jonah. Jonah, are you righteous in your anger? Are you righteous in your anger? In other words, are you justified? Is it right for you to be angry? The question identifies Jonah's tension with God because it recognizes that Jonah is using a standard other than God as his measure of righteousness. He's basically saying to God, you're less righteous than what I am because of the actions you took towards Nineveh and the way I felt about them. I don't know about you, but I'd be taking some steps away from Jonah. Right out here in the middle of the desert, somebody's about to get struck by lightning. Or they ought to. But that's not what God does. That's not what God does. 
Jonah walks away after the most confusing tirade and he sets up a tent to sit in the shade and there he watches what he had hoped against but he knew God would do in Nineveh. Now let me, let's get the time frame on all of this set because if we're not careful, we'll just move in a linear fashion, chapter to chapter, and we'll think each one of these follows the other. But in fact, what's happening here is not coming after the great revival of Nineveh. It's happening right in the midst of it. My guess is every time someone else is repenting and trusting in the Lord, Jonah's anger is burning a little hotter. Because in chapter three, where God sends Jonah to Nineveh to preach the message that he would give to him, we saw that Nineveh was a great city and in size, it said it required three days, whether to get through it or around it, we weren't sure, but we just know the comparison was it was a city that required three days. How many days did Jonah give to his preaching? He went one day into the city and he said, you better turn or burn, God's gonna crush you all. Mm. Thanks, Jonah. You're keeping it real. Keeping it real. And there is the imagery that Jonah only went as far into the city as he had to do to satisfy God's requirement of his life. But as soon as he did it, he turned around and left. And what we see in the first few verses of chapter four is Jonah's walking away. And when he turned his back, we said last week, Jonah threw a spark. What he didn't realize was that God had prepared the hearts of the whole city and he was going to do an incredible, unbelievable, historically marked work among these people. But Jonah didn't see it. He threw the message out and he walked away and immediately the message of the, of the gospel began to burn through the people and a roaring fire of revival burned through Nineveh such that all people were saved. But that's why Jonah's moving back out to a place where he doesn't even have to behold it. He wants to watch from afar instead of being part of that. And friends, as he walks away in a most confusing tirade and sets up his own little tent for some shade, Thank goodness that what Jonah confessed about God was actually true of God and that Jonah, what he knew of God was right. That God is gracious and merciful. God is relentless in his love and in his patience and he wants none to perish but all to come to eternal life. This is who God is. And in his relentless grace, God pursued Jonah to turn his heart from burning rebellion to his love. While God is burning in revival fires in Nineveh, God is following Jonah out to his tent where he is burning in rebellion. That's quite the contrast, didn't he? You go, wait, wait a minute. Is God in Nineveh or is God with Jonah? Yes, he is. Is God working in this man's heart or in that lady's heart today? Yes, he is. All at the same time for the same purpose, the glory of his love. God provides an object lesson to teach Jonah of his rebellion beginning in verse five through verse nine. He appointed a plant to grow up over Jonah so he could provide shade. Evidently, Jonah's own little tent that he had made to give some shade wasn't doing a very good job. 
because it tells us that when this plant grew up for shade over his head to save him from his discomfort, it says, Jonah was exceedingly happy at the plant. Oh, Jesus, I love you because of what you've done for me. But the next day, it tells us God sent a worm to attack and wither the plant. And on that day when the sun rose, God sent a scorching east wind so that the sun beat down on Jonah. And the text tells us literally he was burning from the heat. And Jonah didn't like that as much as he liked it when the plant grew up. Matter of fact, it made Jonah so mad that he told God again, it would be better for me to die than to live. Man, I mean, Jonah has no in-between. You know what I'm saying? I love it. Let's do this all, all the way. Love you, Jesus. I hate you. I can't believe you would do. There's nothing in between in this. It's all or nothing for Jonah. And that's what we're seeing here. God repeats his question to Jonah. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Well, you keep asking me that for. I'm tired of this question, Lord. I don't want to entertain this question anymore. In other words, what God was asking Jonah is this. Jonah, is your anger doing or producing any good in you? Is it helpful at all? Is your anger righteous, making you more like me? And this time, this time Jonah does respond outwardly. And you might say he responds adamantly that in fact his anger verse 9 the second half he says yes I do well to be angry angry enough to die I'm not sure how that's supposed to be good being produced in him but I don't think Jonah was listening to God's question nearly as much as he was boiling you might say in his own anger You see, the fact is, there was a measure of righteousness in Jonah's anger. Nineveh was a wicked and evil people. There wasn't anything about Nineveh that was godlike. There wasn't anything about Nineveh that you could read the qualities of God and go, oh, that makes me think of Nineveh. There wasn't anything good, holy, or righteous that was even could be found in Nineveh in seed form. As a matter of fact, Jonah is making the claim that there wasn't anything in Nineveh worth God's glance, let alone his full saving power. And the Lord responds to Jonah to show him the error of his way but also the glory of his salvation. He says, Jonah pitied the plant that he had nothing to do with growing, but that plant fully served his wants. And yet he's angry with God that God pities a city of more than 120,000 persons who do not know his righteousness and all the creation therein. If you'll remember at the end of chapter three, when the revival fires are burning through Nineveh, and we know that this was happening roughly at the same time, that when they finally reached the king, the king said, 
Everyone must put on sackcloth and ashes, repent and seek the Lord. Pray earnestly to the Lord. And he asked this question, who knows? God might relent and not send the calamity that has been predicted. And we ended last week by saying, we know who knows. Jonah knows. Jonah knows. But here, God is telling Jonah, they don't know. And that proves that they didn't know. There was nothing in their knowledge about God that would cause them to go, well, maybe he will love us enough. Maybe he would love us enough. And regardless of his indignant claim, Jonah was not righteous in his anger, though there was a shred of righteousness in his rationale to justify it. But listen to this, friends. This is the glory of the gospel. This is where we see the glory of God in his sovereign plan for salvation come to full fruition. The glory of the gospel is this, that God is righteous in saving wicked people. God is righteous in saving wicked people. And not only that, not only that, he delights to save wicked people. God wasn't just fulfilling his obligatory godness towards Nineveh. He was delighting in what was happening. It was telling us that all of heaven was in a massive party because of what was transpiring in Nineveh. They were celebrating when each one turned to trust. And the Lord God's in a full-scale celebration in Nineveh while Jonah is in a full-scale meltdown outside the city. God delights to save wicked people, evil people, all wicked and evil people. And listen to me, as Jonah is witness, even the religious type. Even the religious type. That beckons the question. And this is what Jonah didn't understand, I believe, that really caused his tension with God. How? How can a holy God be righteous in saving wicked people? This is right at the crux of our salvation, friends. How can a holy God be righteous in saving wicked, evil people? And friends, this is what the New Testament, the whole gospel is all about. Because in the gospel, Jesus bore our curse for sin. God sacrifices no holiness and no righteousness to save wicked people. Why? Because Jesus paid the sin debt. When God saves wicked, evil people, it's not because he dismisses or he just says, we're going to let that sin slide or I'll turn a blind eye this one time to it. No, he says, I paid it in full. The wrath of God was fully consumed and satisfied in Jesus on the cross. That's how a holy God saves wicked people. That's how he saves you and I. You see, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that in love, it was the forbearance of God to overlook sin for a time until the payment would be made that he knew was coming in Jesus Christ. The people of Nineveh are saved in the same way that you and I are saved. 
when God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. At just the right time, Romans says, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died. Jonah wanted to die. Jesus willingly died. Jonah didn't want anybody to be saved. He just wanted to be removed from the misery of God saving wicked people. Jesus uh, Jesus came and he had nothing compelling him but the love of the Father and the command thereof that he humbled himself and he obeyed. And he willingly laid down his life for you and I. And with that, friends, the story ends. God ends it with a question. What? Where is chapter five? You can't end like this. I mean, at some point, that, that we, we know the story's not over, man. What happens? But that's the point of the book. You see, the reader, we, those of us who are studying this, we, we're confident, in fact, the story is not over. God didn't leave it that way. Jonah, you didn't write enough. But God's object lesson to Jonah becomes an invitation for us. Friends, here's what I want you to see today. God confronts our rebellious heart with his relentless grace to invite us to trust his steadfast love and to rest in his sovereign plan. God is inviting you today through the story of Jonah to trust, trust his steadfast love and to rest in his sovereign plan. You see, Jonah is the study of the person of God in salvation. And it is a study in us learning to trust his sovereign plan. God is sovereign over all creation. If you don't know that in Jonah, you won't ever know that. In the waters, in the waves, in the wind, and the big fish, I let that W word slip in the first service that I've tried so carefully not to say. The great fish that swallowed Jonah. And here again in the wind, in the wilderness, in the burning sun, and all that he used to turn Jonah to himself. God is sovereign over all creation and yet he is relentless in love and grace. And he is pursuing people to draw them to salvation and in life. And Jonah shows us just how relentless God really is. When God was doing his greatest business in Nineveh, he was most interested in his most rebellious servant. If that won't break your heart, I'm not sure anything can. Watch this. The Hebrew word, Raha is used throughout Jonah with a wide range of meaning. And it always denotes the evil and the wickedness that it identifies. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 2, when it calls the wicked, evil Ninevites, it's Raha, the Ninevites. It characterizes the trouble of the sailors in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. 
It even qualifies the disaster that God relented from bringing on Nineveh in chapter 3. But listen to this. In chapter 4, the same word for wickedness and evil qualifies Jonah's displeasure. It qualifies his anger and it qualifies his discomfort. Uh Uh-oh. That may seem like a wide array of meanings, and yet we see, especially when we get to the root of Jonah's tension with God, how sin and sinfulness in our nature of our very heart manifest itself in so many ways through our life. You see, when God served Jonah's felt needs, oh, he and God, they were good. Why? Because he felt good. His pleasures were satisfied. His comfort was arranged. He was convinced that that's what he most needed. But when God served Jonah's felt needs in ways that Jonah didn't like, it made him angry. No, it made him doubly angry, greatly displeased. And it discomforted him to the point where he didn't even want to live. He wanted to die. You see, all the manifestations of sin in Jonah's life are demonstrated by the use of this word. And we're seeing a man who claims to be serving God and legitimately was called of God, but this wickedness and evil that's remaining deep in his heart is rising to the top, and now he's in a full-on argument with God, claiming his righteousness over God's alone. Yet in all of these ways, what did God do? No, no, he is relentless. And the very things that Jonah knew about God but was refusing to believe about God in his love and in his mercy and in his grace. God was laboring for Jonah's heart even when Jonah wanted nothing to do with God. Jonah's relationship with God, friend, had diminished to little more than how it was he felt about God or what it was he wanted from God above what it was he knew to be true of God. And friends, that's always a terrible place to be, but it is always a place that religion will bring you to. Because religion says that God is for you. If you get to him. And that's what Jonah was applying to God. God is patient and merciful and loving. Both to the wicked evil sinner. And to the rebellious saint. God is calling all people to trust him. But for God's children we know God. We know the things that are true of God. And there's, we know that there's nothing about God that is not fully trustworthy. And yet our heart rebels when we are threatened. Contrary to so much religious Christian cultures. Christians don't live without tension with God. But we want to believe that we can. You see, Jonah shows us that our sinful nature in the flesh makes sure of this. Sin tempts us that we will, that we can believe we will be like God or or that we can be right in some way without God, that we want to be in control. We want to be the master of our own life. And as long as we try to maintain control, we will never tolerate any attempt, even from God, to claim lordship in some area of our life, some way or some manner that we don't agree with. But so often in the Christianese of our culture, 
to have tension with God should be buried. It shouldn't be confessed that for some reason God's going to love those less who don't like him as much in certain situations. And so you better not let people know, yea, not even let God know that you've got a problem with him. But what does God teach us in Jonah? Does he teach us to come to him? He teaches us more than that. He's coming for us. That when your problems with God are buried deep in your heart and they begin to rise, God's not afraid of your problems. God's not afraid of your angst with him. He's not afraid of the things that you don't agree with, you don't like. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what he's laboring for in you. And he loves you more. He loves you more than the anger that arises, doubly so, from your problems with him. Friends, God calls us to recognize what we know to, true, that he, to, to be true, that he is worthy, and to submit our whole life to him. This is what Jesus says. That's why Jesus teaches that if any man would come after me, if any person wants to be a Christian, if any person wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. There is no Christianity without self-crucifixion. There is no Christianity without self-denial daily. There is no following Jesus that begins with what you can do for him, what you have done for him, or what you think you ought to do for him. It begins, deny self. The essence of faith, friends, is that we trust God's word, that it is true. The essence of the faith, of, of the Christian faith, is that we trust God's way is best and that his will is most glorious. Therefore, we crucify the flesh that opposes him in every way, to any measure or to any extent, and at every manifestation, so that we walk humbly by faith to follow Jesus. This is why remembering the gospel at all times and regularly immersing ourselves in the truth of the gospel from the scriptures, yea, even surrounding ourselves in the fellowship of people that will speak the truth in love to our life is essential. It's critical. It's important for your Christian life. Why? Because the Bible teaches that we don't even let nebulous, numb thoughts cross our mind without taking them captive, submitting them to the claims of Christ and asking, is God glorified in my mental patterns, in my thinking, in my cognitive activity, or am I just allowing anything to cross over my mind? Biblical exhortation to remember the gospel means that we fight to believe and trust that Jesus and Jesus alone is our righteousness. That there is no righteousness in us before him. And that's what the word teaches. That's why God confronts our rebellious heart with his relentless grace. To invite us to trust his steadfast love and to rest in his sovereign plan. And friends, in the remaining few moments today... I want to look at three times when tension with God tempts you to buy a ticket to Tarshish. Three times in your life when tension with God rises. I know some of you bury it really well. We all learn to bury it well. But God says, I don't want you to bury it. 
I want you to give it to me so I can give to you what I have for you. That's the exchange he's inviting us to. And by his relentless grace, he's pursuing you today to turn and to trust in him. Time number one, when you are tempted to buy a ticket to Tarshish, when God fails to serve your self-will, when God fails to serve your self-will, what pleased God angered Jonah. I'm gonna repeat that because that's been echoing in my heart for weeks in study of this chapter. What pleased God angered Jonah. Jonah burned because God did what he didn't want him to do. Even worse, even worse for Jonah was you made me participate in what I didn't want you to do, God. Listen to me, friends. I've said this in a number of ways, countless number of times. This is why serving among the body of Christ is so important. Because when you serve, God will unearth those areas where you hold tension with him that he might heal, restore, and redeem. And that's exactly what he's doing with Jonah. But if you don't serve, you will effectively keep buried those things that are most conflicting your heart with God. Why? Because you learn to navigate ways through even the church where you don't have to deal with God in that area. We'll get to control in a moment. Few things have the potential to cause us to burn in anger toward God more than when his command leads us in a way we don't like, in a way we don't ask for, and in a way we don't agree with. It might be that we don't get the answer to a question that we wanted We don't get the resolution to a conflict. A a situation or a relationship don't end the way that we wanted it to. But friends, resting in God's sovereign control over our life means this, that he is greater even when it's harder. That he is more rewarding even when it demands greater sacrifice. That he is more fulfilling even when it's completely opposite of what you thought. Are you determined? You see, when God confronts your self-will, it's always because he holds more and greater glory for your life. The second time when you'll be tempted to buy a ticket to Tarshish is when God challenges your self-sovereignty. Your self-sovereignty. Verses five through nine, Jonah created a little world he could control. He was the master of his own destiny in a tent that couldn't shade him from the sun. Remind you of anything? Remind you of the withering, dying leaves of Adam and Eve that they tried to cover their sin with in the garden. And it was pathetic how poorly their own hands could cover their own sin. Jonah set up a tent to sit and so God followed him. Don't miss the glory of that. Jonah ran, God followed. And he blessed him. He blessed him. He he grew up a vine over. He blessed him and it made him glad. And it tells us that Jonah was exceedingly glad. Thank you that you've you've given me this vine. You've shaded me from the sun. Now I can live and I'm so happy. But God blessed him a second time. And the second time it made him miserable. 
It again made him furious, burning with anger. But listen to me, both of these were God's blessings. What? Well, yes, both of these were God's blessing. In the same way that Paul says in the New Testament, I prayed, I begged of God repeatedly to take this thorn out of my flesh. You see, Paul had something in his life that was tension with God. That had the capacity to create burning hot double anger towards God. That had the capacity and the temptation to trust his own way, his own will, and his own righteousness instead of believing what God said for him. But he said, when I prayed that third time, God said this. God didn't say, I'm going to take that out so you can be comfortable. I'm going to take that out so you can return to control. No, God said, my grace will be sufficient for you. In other words, it's not coming out, Paul. You need to figure out another way to live. God's the one that gave the thorn to Paul. In the book of Deuteronomy, we learn that Moses, who at the age of roughly 120 years old, served the Lord. He led for 40 years the children of Israel out of Egypt captivity and he dealt with all of their grumbling, their moaning and complaining for 40 years as he led them through the wilderness. But because of his own sin, God had told him, you won't lead them into the promised land. And Moses was like, dude, I served you for a long time. What are you thinking here? The Bible tells us towards the end of Deuteronomy, God took him up to a high place and he told him to look out, there it is. You know why God did that? I believe that God was showing him, I am faithful to my promise, but this is not a promise for you, it's a promise for the people. You won't do this, Joshua will do this. And in that moment, that intimate moment with God, do you know what God had the audacity to tell Moses to do? Now you go back down off this mountain and you serve faithfully until the end of your life and that will be a greater glory than anything else you could imagine. And that's what Moses did. And it wasn't long before his life came to an end and Joshua stepped into leadership. They crossed the Jordan into the promised land. You see, friends, God's plan doesn't always have our pattern in it. It doesn't always have our way or our will considered. It's because we're not sovereign, but God is. Jonah's anger with God really boiled down to this, and I believe all of ours end up doing that. He's not God. Jonah wasn't God, and he didn't like it. He didn't like it when it disturbed his comfort. He didn't like it when it destroyed his control. You see, our tension with God starts the same way so often, too. When God calls you to live in a way or with something that you don't like, you don't understand, you don't agree with, so often our first reaction is to rebel. Well, then God's word must be wrong. He couldn't possibly have meant for that to get in there. I don't know how it happened, but evidently a scribe snuck that in there. We, We begin to question his goodness and his glory. He doesn't really know what needs to happen here. Evidently, he's blinked when all of this took place in my life and I'm gonna have to show a little more wisdom than God seems to have. You see, these are all trained response patterns that sin convinces and deceives us in to think about God, even when we know what is true of God. 
But friends, God's command in our life is more glorious than our comfort or our control. He commands our life by his word to reveal his glory and to bestow within us his power to transform us and to make us more like him. God created you for him. You didn't create God for you. That's what you're trying to do. God has good for you. He knows with acute precision to every inch, to every measure and every extent, the glory of your life. And that's what he's laboring for without question. He's not trying to steal some good from you. He's not trying to destroy you. When God disturbs the comforts and the controls of your life, it's always, always, without question, because he has a greater glory for you. The third time you'll be tempted to buy a ticket to Tarshish is when God confronts your self-righteousness. Jonah's self-righteousness is on full display. And friends, it's both ugly and convicting. And the worst thing about it is it's all too familiar. Jonah claimed self-righteousness when he took issue with God's righteousness to forgive others. He didn't want God to do for others the very thing he most wanted God to do for himself. Oh, you know what you call that? Supreme hypocrisy. And it caused him to say to God, yes, I am righteous in my anger, but it was nothing more than a hard and rebellious heart wanting to make an honest admission of the reality or of the truth. And we do the same thing when we are angered by God showing his love to people we don't love or to people we don't like whether he brings goodness to them or withholds judgment from them, when we get frustrated by someone else's success or when we celebrate their failure. We've got the same burning anger that Jonah had. And until we rest in God's righteousness for us, we'll never become more like Jesus to rejoice in God's redeeming power wherever it may be found. You see, God confronts our self-righteousness because it's killing us by our own anger. He's saving us from ourselves. And God's righteousness releases us to be, become conduits of his relentless love and his relentless mercy and his relentless grace by sharing the gospel so all can hear and believe in Jesus. This is why God is confronting our rebellious heart. This is why God is bestowing his relentless grace upon us to invite us to trust his steadfast love and rest in his sovereign plan. God's inviting us to stay in Nineveh and enjoy the glory of his redemption and and to relish in our own as he saves other people instead of running into the wilderness in rebellion. That's what he's inviting us to do. And you see, friends, what pleased God angered Jonah. That's why it is so convicting for me to be so similar to Jonah. Because the pleasures of God found no place in the heart of Jonah. God's mighty power that Jonah loved for himself infuriated when others received it. God's sovereign control over all of creation that blessed Jonah repulsed him when it blessed others. Jonah's wickedness and evil were not visible to the world, but hear me, friends, and this is what I need you to understand, neither were they hidden from God. They weren't hidden from God, though not visible to the world. Though God knows our heart, he saw Jonah's wickedness and he acted to root it out. 
God is working by his power to confront all things in our life that thwart and that threaten us from becoming fully like Jesus. That's why he confronts our rebellious heart with his relentless grace. I'm gonna ask the worship team to return. And as they do, I'm gonna offer a few more words to direct our response. The book of Jonah ends the way it does because Jonah is not writing to convince us of his righteousness. Rather, he is writing us to tell us that the issue is no longer Jonah, the issue now is us. Where are we with God? Where are you with God? What are you doing with your tension with God? What are you doing when God tries to confront that tension? Are you running? Are you responding? The question is, is your life fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And listen to me, Christian. Yes, my life is fully surrendered does not mean that your life is completely free or absent of all tension with God. But your yes does mean that in the face of it, you are learning to trust and to obey instead of exercising your will as dominant over his word. God is bigger than your tension with him. He is more glorious than the promise of your temptation to run from him. He is immeasurably and inconceivably more and greater than the rebellion of your heart that wants to deceive you to believe otherwise. You can trust the Lord today and you will find his relentless grace is sufficient for you.